Well, after I finished my sermon last week on the first part of what biblical submission should look like, there was a couple who came up after the service. And uh, the husband said to me, uh, Roger, I think you've messed everything up. (laughs) He said, because we're leaving this service after a sermon on submission and my wife is still smiling. (laughs) Now, thankfully, he was joking. But what he said is, we have both learned so much today. Because what we thought biblical submission was is not at all what it is. You see, many have heard that submission of wives in society means that they're a doormat or that they're a second-class citizen. But as we saw in the first of, I'll remind you, a three-part series within Peter, because uh, I said this is too big of a topic and one that is too misunderstood to just try to cover in one Sunday. And what we saw last week is that the role of a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, as we saw in Ephesians 5.25. And we laid the foundation for what biblical submission is. Today we're going to talk about the second part, and next week we're going to come back and look at 1 Peter 3.7, where it says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner. And we'll talk about what that means, whereas men, we literally go to school and learn about who our wives are. But today we're going to pick back up looking at what biblical submission is in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 1 through 2. So I invite you to look with me at this. As Peter says, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, as you see the words there, in the same way, what that's doing is pointing us back to chapter 2. You remember Peter has been talking about submission in multiple contexts. We saw beginning in verse 11 where he said, we as believers are to submit to the government over us, even when it was an unrighteous government like Peter was facing in his day with Nero persecuting and killing Christians. Then we saw where we are to submit to those who are over us at work. And we talked about what it means. Even Peter said, if you have those who are unreasonable, he said, some of you are blessed with good and gentle masters while others are unreasonable. And in either case, we saw how a Christian submission uh, can be used as a witness as we show godly submission. Now, I want to make sure you understand what godly submission is. As we've talked about all throughout Peter, this is the Greek word hupotasso that means to submit. And the word describes a military chain of command. And we've seen in each instance where the person who is over us ultimately has God at the top uh, of the military chain of command. God is the commander in chief. So as we're talking about the home where we say the husband is the head of the home, or he may be over the wife and children in the home, he has an authority called Jesus Christ over him. And we are to uh, submit to Christ, men and women. Uh, you remember last week we talked about how the wife's submission to her husband is ultimately to God, and the husband is simply the secondary beneficiary of his wife's obedience to the Lord. And so men, it, this doesn't give you a blank check to say things that your spouse should do that are unrighteous or ungodly, because ultimately Jesus overrides anything you say. So if what you're saying is contrary to the word of God, uh, our wives are not to listen to that. They are to listen to the Lord. Now, As we're talking uh, about this submission, we we see here in in chapter 3, there are some wives who are in situations where their husbands are not obedient to God's word. And that can mean one of two things. In some cases, you had wives who were married to unbelievers. It may be that the woman had come to faith after marriage, 
or maybe in uh, disobedience to the word, where the Bible tells us as believers not to be unequally yoked, you find yourself in a marriage relationship where you're married to a non-believer. And we'll talk in a moment about what you're supposed to do in that situation. The other is maybe you do have a believing husband, but he is one who is not living according to God's word. And so what, what are we to do in a scenario like that? Well, as I mentioned, this is a three-part series. And last week, I gave you the illustration of a triangle. You remember the world says we kind of move along the line and meet each other halfway. But what God says is each of us, as men and women, are to go up our side of the triangle, so to speak, doing what God calls us to do. And as we grow in our walk with God, that's how we meet. We meet at the top, not in the middle trying to compromise. So if you miss that message, uh, please go back and get the foundation for what we're looking at today. Now, the reason for that is the same thing we saw in chapter 2, because what Peter said is, if you have an unrighteous uh, master over you, whether it's a boss or the government or uh, now in the home scenario, it says, by your behavior, as they see your gracious response, uh, it can be used to cause them to say, why are you different? Why, why are you responding in grace to me when I'm showing none of that to you? And this can become an opportunity to share our faith about who Jesus is and his great gift of grace to us. Now, this is why it says a husband can be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And the word chaste here literally means morally pure. So again, ladies, what this is saying is God has standards. And if you have a husband who is telling you to do something that goes against God's standards, uh, you are to obey God over your husband. Now, in times where you have to disagree with your spouse, you can do it without being disagreeable. Uh, don't say to your husband, well, you're a heathen, so I don't have to listen to you. Uh, a better way to approach it would be to say, I love you, but I love God more, and I'm going to do what God calls me to do. Now, I'm not hidden away in some ivory tower. Some of you may be sitting here, or as you're worshiping online, you're saying, Roger, I live in a home that is anything but one that follows God's biblical standards. In fact, I'm in an abusive relationship. Uh, I know those exist. Far too many of those relationships exist. You've heard me share before about my own upbringing. I grew up in a home where my father was a wife and child abuser, very severe physical abuse. I was kicked out of the house at the age of 16 because I was winning the fights protecting my mom and my siblings from my father's physical abuse. It's one of the reasons I became a police officer in Dallas before I was a pastor, because I wanted to help families who were in the situation I had grown up in. And as a policeman, I saw far too many cases of domestic abuse. And even now as a pastor, I'm sad to say that there are times I deal with families where there is abuse that is happening. And I know you may be in a scenario where you're saying, Roger, I have an abusive husband. Uh, and ladies, let me say this as well. I deal sometimes with situations where the wife is the physical abuser of a man. That can happen as well. And in either case, I want you to hear this clearly, that is not biblical submission. Anybody who tells you you're to take the abuse and you're to bear up under it, uh, that's not what Peter is telling us here. If you are in an abusive scenario where you or your children are in danger, I want you to hear this clearly. You need to be safe. And we will help you. If you are in a situation like that, uh, please contact me. 
If you're able to come up and talk to me after the service, I'd love to do that. If you're at home or you're here and you're saying, well, I, I can't be seen talking to you, uh, email me, call me. Uh, we will find a way to help you. The first thing that needs to happen is you need to be physically safe. And then the second thing that can happen is we can begin to work on healing in the home to take the steps that may help you ultimately to have a home where you are safe and honored as you should be. Now, as we're talking about this, I mentioned a moment ago, what if you're not in an abusive situation, but you're in a marriage where you have an unbelieving spouse? Well, the scriptures tell us this in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let, her not send, let him not send her away. And a, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And this is what Peter is talking about here, where even in the scenario where it's not the way it should be, it can move to where it could be what God wants to see. As it says, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, as we're talking about letting your life be the sermon, I want to make sure you understand this as well. Ladies, this isn't saying that you speak only when you're spoken to. This doesn't mean that you're silent and that you never talk to your husband about the gospel. In fact, the Bible is very clear. We need to share uh, with our mouths about the word. Uh, it says in Romans 10, 14, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And in, in a few verses, we're going to see when we come to 1 Peter three fifteen, it says we are to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. What Peter's point here is, is that our lives often speak louder than our lips. You can use a lot of words, and your life may be speaking louder than your words, and your husband will not hear you, or your wife, because of your behavior, men, it will be a, a barrier. We're going to see where uh, God tells us that our prayers as husbands can be hindered if we're not living as we should. And so... When it comes to using a lot of words, as I said next week, we're going to talk about 1 Peter 3, 7, where it says, men, live with your wives in an understanding manner. And we're going to see that word understanding is the Greek word katanosin. It literally means according to knowledge. And what it means is we are to go to school on who our wives are. I hear a lot of men say, Roger, it's a moving target and I can't figure her out. And that may be true, but what God says is you are to love your wife and continue to go to school uh, about who she is. So we'll talk more about that next week. But there are differences, men, if you haven't figured it out, between men and women. And uh, one of the ways that men and women are different in the amount of words they use. A uh, husband came home and he showed his wife a study that said women will use on average between 25 and 30,000 words a day, while men will use between 9 and 11,000 words a day. And the, the husband said, why do you all use so many more words than we do? And the wife said, it's because we have to repeat everything for you to hear us. <laughs> now, ladies, while you may feel that's the case, 
there can come a point where too many words will equal no words because your husband will just stop listening. Uh, the scriptures warn us in Proverbs 21.9, it says it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. The way that we say things can impact what is heard. Uh, you may be having the right motives, but you have the wrong methods. If you're somebody who wants to tape John 3.16 on his beer can or put a track that says Turner Burn in his lunchbox, uh, you may give them heartburn, but I don't think you're probably going to be effective in leading your husband to the Lord. You know, God who made us, remember the, the scriptures are God's owner's manual for us. He knows us. He designed us. And ladies, one of the things that God is telling us here very clearly is how to reach men. You know that men are more visual than women, typically. And so what God is saying is what he sees will have a greater impact than what he hears. If your life and lips are not in alignment, it can become a barrier. And so what Peter says here is husbands can be won when they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And this word observe or see means to watch attentively. I mean, think of your husband, if he's a sports fan, maybe when a football game, baseball, hockey, whatever his sport of choice is on, t is on TV, uh, he's probably not hearing anything you're saying, right? He's so zoomed in on this that as you're talking to him, he's not hearing you. Uh, but I, I will tell you this, even if your husband is acting deaf, uh, he still sees you and he does still hear you. He may not respond to it, but he's hearing you. And what that means is he hears what you're saying on the phone when you're talking with your friend, or he hears what you're saying to the children in the home about him. And, and the way that we are, are talking and doing things, uh, your, your husband may be deaf, but he's not blind. And I want to remind you as well, men and women, that our children are watching as well. I'm saying this to both men and women. Ladies, as your kids watch how you talk to your husband, what, is, what, what do they see? Do they see you treating their dad with respect? Do they hear uh, you building him up or are you constantly tearing him down? And men, the same goes for us. When you talk to your wife, when you treat her a certain way, do you say to your children, don't talk to your mom like that? And it's what they've seen you doing in the way you talk to your wife. Men and women, children are not to be pawns in the battle in the home. You remember last week we talked about how we're not to be waging war with each other. That's our enemy, Satan, who's been trying to destroy the home from the beginning. What we're to be doing is loving and serving one another. And as you think about your home, what does it look like? Ladies, one, a, another study was done that talked about what are men's greatest needs. And you may say, oh, Roger, that's easy. It's sex. If you think a man's greatest need is sex, you're wrong. What study after study has shown is the number one need that a man has is for respect. The number one need a man has is for respect. And once again, we see God who made us and gave us the owner's manual knows that because he says here, wise by your respectful behavior, your husbands may be won without a word. Now, men, we're going to talk about this next week as well. Uh, when you think in terms of what your wife's greatest need is, study after study has shown is for love and security. And that's what God told us last week as he said, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Be willing to die for her. Be willing to serve her. Be willing to do the things. 
that God calls us to do. And as men and women, as we're doing what God calls us to do, not only will we end up with a happier home for ourselves, but I want to remind you as your children are watching, you're leaving a legacy. Your children, men and women, are learning what their marriage should look like by watching your marriage. And your grandchildren are going to learn from their mom and dad, your children, what their marriage should look like by watching. So as you think in terms of the legacy you're leaving, it's for generations. And when you think about that, maybe you're sitting here saying, well, Roger, we've messed up. Our home hasn't been what it should be. We've, we've made a mess of our marriage. Well, it's not too late to change. You can start today. You can go back and say to your children, mom and dad have kind of messed up. Mom and dad haven't been living like God wanted us to, but we're going to be working on changes. And we want you to know we love each other. We're committed to each other. We're going to, we're going to do what we can. And even if you uh, are in a situation where you've been divorced, all the things I said a moment ago about are you tearing down or building up your spouse supply, uh, please don't make your children a pawn where you're trying to get at your ex through what you're saying about the husband or wife uh, that is now an ex, because that's still the mom or dad for the, the children. As, as we're talking about what God's design is, as I said, you can always take the next step to uh, begin to have what God calls on us to do. And as we're talking about what God calls on us to do in verses 3 or 4, you'll see where Peter moves from talking about the behavior of the wife to her beauty. He says, And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, just as some people have twisted what the scriptures say about biblical submission, this is another set of verses that is so often twisted. I've heard countless cases of Christian malpractice where people will take this set of verses and they'll say, well, this is telling you that if you wear makeup, you're in sin, ladies. Or others will say the, way a wo- the only way a, women, a woman can wear her hair is in a bun or if it's straight and all the way down her back. Ladies, you don't have to look like you just stepped off the set of Little House on the Prairie uh, or to be an Amish-looking woman in order to be godly. Now, let me say this. If you're a lady who likes to dress that way and, and, and appear that way, that is wonderful. Uh, I will tell you that natural beauty is just that, beautiful. This is not saying that you have to be one way or another. Uh, but what I am saying is it's time for us to quit making the Bible say things that it's not. Uh, if, if you look at verse 3, I want you to notice a word there. It's merely, merely. You see, God is not making a blanket prohibition here. He's, he's not saying a woman is not to wear makeup or jewelry or saying what her hair or clothing choices must be. What Peter's doing here is he's addressing how things are out of balance with people in his day, which is why he says, let not your adornment be merely external. When you see this Greek word translated as adornment, It's the word cosmos. Now, it's spelled in Greek with a K, but we get our English word cosmos with a C from it, and it describes the ordered universe. It's also where we get our word cosmetics or makeup. And so what this is telling us is God approves of that which is ordered and attractive. And that applies to our appearance as well. Uh, There is nothing wrong with looking nice. 
by fixing your hair or fixing your face or by the clothing that you choose to wear. But there is something wrong if that's your only focus. When Peter talks about the braiding of hair here, he was again dealing with an issue of excess in his day because some women took this to the extreme. Now, some who are sitting here today know what this is like because you lived, you lived through the beehive hairdos, right? I remember watching my mom uh, walk around with hair that looked like that. And some of you did this as well. And... Um, the more affluent in Peter's day uh, not only had hair like that, but they would do this. They would put trinkets in their hair. They would buy other women's hair. They would weave it in to get even bigger. Uh, they would have to sometimes tie together all of this tower of hair uh, with beads and braids and things. And so this is what Peter's talking about. When, when he talks about the wearing of gold jewelry in verse 3, the word for wearing means putting around and it referred to a gaudy display of jewelry, not just in the hair, but all over. Now, ladies, this isn't saying you can't accessorize. But if you're somebody who dresses like Mr. T, uh, if you remember him, or you think of the rap artist in our day, again, this is taking something to the excess, where it becomes the focus. And this is what Peter is speaking against. He's saying, do not do things that the attention is drawn to the externals. Instead, what he's talking about here is the internal beauty that is to be resident. Now, as we're talking about overdoing it here, uh, I, I just want to mention clothing as well, because if you're trying to use this passage to say women can't wear makeup or jewelry, uh, then you need to add dresses to it, because Peter says here, or putting on dresses. You know, what some people have said to ladies is, you can't wear pants, that's a sin. Or then we say, if you're showing your shoulder, you're in sin. Or some will say it's the elbow or knees or even toes. And, and we start putting together this list of do's and don'ts. And, and men, if you're the type that say, well, women aren't supposed to dress in a way that causes me to stumble, uh, as we talked about last week, remember when you point your finger at somebody, three are pointing back at you? Uh, the way you dress can be a stumbling block as well to women. So it applies to all of us. But if you're somebody who's using this passage to say this is a do and a don't and God says dress this way or that way, stop it. Just stop it. That's not what this passage is talking about. What this passage is talking about, as you look at it, is the internal is more important than the external. God is talking about the internal beauty of women. And it applies to men as well. But in terms of women uh, and the pressures they face, we live in a world where women face extra pressure to pay attention to how they look. And God tells you what's on the inside is where true beauty is seen. We find that in other passages. Proverbs 11.22 says, A beautiful woman who lacks inner beauty and character is like a pig with a gold ring in her nose. Proverbs 31.25-26 says, Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. This is why God says here that you're to cultivate a quiet and gentle spirit. Now, ladies, as I've already said, this doesn't mean you're silent. This doesn't mean you only speak when you're spoken to. Uh, this word for gentle is sometimes translated as meek. And the word describes... Uh, the word literally means strength under control, strength under control. 
It was used to describe the bit that gets put in a horse's mouth that you attach the bridle and reins to. And if you've ever ridden a horse, you know that all of the strength is resident there. It's just strength under control. Now, if you ever think you're fully in control of that horse, (laughs) you're not. I worked at a ranch camp for an entire summer as a wrangler, and I rode a lot of horses, and no matter how great you thought you were, uh, when a horse decided it was going to do what it wanted to do, uh, you found out. And so this is, this is, when it talks about a woman having this quiet and gentle spirit, ladies, what it means is you recognize the power that you possess, and you use it in a productive way. And every lady learns that they have immense power. And it starts at a very early age. I have two daughters. And uh, when they were very young girls, they learned by the way that they batted their eyes or cocked their head or did something, they had some control over how their father reacted. My wife would sometimes walk around with her little finger up like this, like they've got you wrapped around, you know, their pinky, and they were in control. Now, Again, the picture here is harnessing the power you have for good. And let me give you an example of what that looks like from my own life. Uh, Here's a picture of me from the summer of 1981. Now, that's not my wife, Kim. That's a lady named Jan Westover. I'll talk about her in a moment. And my wife said I could show this picture. (laughs) So uh, I am 16 years old at that point. This is the summer before my junior year in high school and before... Uh, I go any further, I want you to notice the shirt I'm wearing is Journey. This was a rock band called Journey, and that was a concert I went to. You can take the picture down now, thank you. (laughs) Um, That was what my wardrobe consisted of in 1981. I had all kinds of concert shirts, Boston, Van Halen, Journey, Texas Jam. I mean, that was part of the, well, you know, (laughs) don't clap (laughs) And I, and I tell you that because I want you to understand the, the background. I've already talked about the abusive relationship I was in. Well, a, a family God brought into my life was the Honer family. And Dr. Harold Honer was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, he had been invited to speak at this Christian conference center in California called Mount Hermon. And so his family was going for this two-week Christian camp. And he said, Roger, would you like to go with our family? My best friend was his son, Steve. And so... Uh, I, Harold Honer, Dr. Honer flew up and Steve and I uh, drove the family up there. So we were three days in a car driving from Dallas to Mount Hermon, California. And uh, he had two, Steve had two sisters. They were like my sisters. You know, I kind of grew up with this family as well. And you can imagine the fun on the road trip as we fought as a family. And so by the time we got to California, Steve's sister Uh, Susan was not liking me very much, so she decided to make sure I would have a bad week at the camp, and she told all the girls that I was not a Christian, and I was a bad boy, and uh, stay away from me, don't do any missionary dating, and that kind of thing. Susan and I are friends to this day, we love each other, but... Uh, So that was the table that was kind of set. So I show up, and I'm wearing all these rock and roll shirts, and every girl there knows I'm not a Christian. I was raised Roman Catholic. I had a a great understanding of who God was, but I had not come to the point of understanding salvation was a gift of grace by faith alone. I was still trying to work my way to God through sacramental works. And so a couple of days into the camp, 
there was a gospel presentation that was given. Now, this young lady, Jan Westover, that I showed you, we had hit it off, and I kind of liked her, and I could tell she kind of liked me, but she was keeping her distance. And after this gospel presentation, uh, I prayed to receive the Lord. And as soon as the speaker said, amen, Jan, who was sitting next to me, said, did you pray that prayer? And I said, I did. And she got up and gave me this great big hug. And I thought, wow, being a Christian is really cool. <laughs> I, you know? And, and then the next thing that Jan did is she took me by the hand, and she took me to the camp bookstore. And she said, Roger, you need to get a Bible. And she helped me pick out a Bible. I bought a Bible. And, and we went around the rest of that week as a couple. And as we spent time together, Jan was directing me, not in an overbearing way, but she would say to me, did you, did you read the Bible last night? What did you read? Let's talk about the passage. Hey, we need to stop and pray about this. And we were talking, and, and, and she, was, she was nudging me but not nagging me in what it meant to be a Christian. And then there was a free day at the camp. We, uh, all the high schoolers were given a free day, and some of the local kids you know, said, hey, let's all go to the beach. And uh, one of them had a pickup truck, and so we all piled. This was back in the day when you could still ride in the bed of a pickup truck. And we packed, you know, shoulder to shoulder in the back of this pickup truck, and we're driving uh, to the beach. And as we're stopped at a stoplight, uh, there was a surfer dude standing on the corner there, and he says, where y'all going? We said, we're going to the beach. And he said, hey, let me jump in. And one of the kids said, no, you can't come. And the guy shot the finger at us, gave us the middle finger love sign, right? And uh, being a, a brand new, unsanctified Christian, my immediate response was to return the love sign uh, to this young man. And ladies and men, if you think, well, I have kids just like you, there's hope. Remember, I, I, <laughs> I'm your pastor today, and I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm having a time of confession here, right? And so Jan had been sitting next to me in the bed of the pickup truck. We were all sandwiched in, and she had been kind of leaning on me, holding on to my arm. And at the moment I did that, she slapped me, and uh, she crawled over everybody to get to the farthest end of the pickup bed she could, and she sat over there with her back to me. And I'm sitting there like, what just happened? And then I kind of replay the tape in my mind, and I go, oh, okay, that's what happened. So I immediately then worked my way over to where she was, and I tried to do the first dumb thing, which was to justify my sin. I said, well, he did it first. And her response was just to go, you know, with her back to me. And so then I tried the next dumb thing, which was to camouflage my sin. And I said, well, I was just returning the love sign. And uh, that got a reaction, but not the one I wanted. Because she turned around and she said to me, I don't want to be around you when you're like this. And then she turned her back on me and started pouting again. And I'm staring at her back and I'm thinking, okay. And then I said, Jan, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I mean, if you've never learned those words, they're golden. You need to learn them. I'm sorry I was wrong. Because as soon as I said that to her, she turned around. And she said to me, Roger, don't tell me you're sorry. Tell God you're sorry. Now, that's something else we all need to learn. It's called confession. The word confession literally means to say the same thing as God says. And when we confess our sins, what we're doing is we're seeing our sin from God's perspective. And we're saying, I see what I did and why it was wrong. I see how I hurt somebody by what I did. I see how I'm walking away from God rather than walking with him. And at that moment, 
uh, I confess my sin to God. And I did it, I'll tell you, because I wanted to please this young woman. My motivation at that moment was for Jan not to be mad at me. But as I've grown in my walk with God, I've realized that my motivation needs to please the audience of one, God. And I've continued to try to walk that way the rest of my life. It's not that I'm perfect, I still fail. But when I do, I confess my sins, as we're all called to do. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Jan and I got to see each other the rest of that week at camp. And then when camp was over, she went back to Sacramento where she lived. And I went back to Dallas. And that was the last time I ever physically saw Jan. Now, we continued for about two years through a long-distance dating relationship. I would call her. I would write her letters. And I say it was a dating relationship, but it was really a discipling relationship. Because Jan would send me uh, Christian music. In those days, it was on a cassette tape. Uh, But she would send me a Christian cassette, and I would listen to the music because I wanted to listen to what Jan was listening to. And as I did that, in time, my taste in music changed. I started to listen to rock lyrics and go, hmm, some of those aren't so good. And then I would listen to Christian lyrics, and they were honoring and worshiping God. So I started to like Christian music more than my previous choice of music. Now, I tell all this to you because I want you to see, ladies, that if a teenage girl could have that kind of impact on a young man, what kind of impact can your life have on your husband as you live in a chaste and respectful way? And if you're a person who's not yet married, the same thing in whatever dating relationship you're in. Is it honoring to God? And uh, the way you live now can have impact on people all through their life. Now, as Peter is talking about this set of instructions, he brings them to a close. And he does so by giving us an example of a woman who did what he's been teaching. What what 1 Peter 5, I mean 3, verses 5 through 6 tells us is, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, as Peter mentioned Sarah here, he could have picked any number of godly women. He could have gone to Queen Esther. If you've ever read the book of Esther, you know she was a young Jewish woman who married a pagan king, and by her her life and impact on her non-believing husband, she was able to be used to help save the Jewish nation and to impact her husband. Abigail is another woman you should read about. Her story is found in 1 Samuel 25.3, where it says, And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. Now, the man mentioned there is her husband named Nabal, whose name literally means fool. And he was a fool. As you look at the the passage there, it'll talk about how his behavior almost led to the slaughter of his family and village. But because of this woman, Abigail, balancing submission to him while also demonstrating wisdom, she ended up saving her family and uh, others. Ruth is another godly lady. Read the book of Ruth, and you'll find a great love story where this man, Boaz, marries this widowed woman named Ruth. Now, Ruth was a a younger, beautiful young woman, but the reason Boaz was attracted to her was because of her reputation, her character, how she honored and loved her her mother-in-law, 
and, and just how she lived her life. But what Peter does here is he picks Sarah in verse 5. And by picking Sarah, God again shows us that the inner beauty of a woman is more important than the externals. Because as you look at the life of who Sarah was, uh, she was probably one of the most beautiful women who has ever lived. And you can find that because two times in the Bible, we're told were kings who had harems full of beautiful women uh, wanted Sarah as their wife because of her great beauty. The first instance of that is found in Genesis chapter 12, where Pharaoh, who was king of Egypt, tried to marry Sarah. Now, Abraham, her husband, was afraid Pharaoh would kill him in order to get her. So he went to his wife, Sarah, and said, tell Pharaoh you're my sister. And then he gives her over to be married to Pharaoh. Now, God intervened, protected Sarah's uh, dignity, and nothing happened. Uh, but then she was discovered to be the wife of Abraham. It happens again in Genesis chapter 20, where Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Now, let me just say this as well. I told you she's the most, one of the most beautiful women. When Pharaoh wanted her, she was 65 years old. So ladies, if you're sitting here saying, oh, my beauty's gone, it's not gone. Again, remember the inner beauty is far more important than the outer beauty. But when Abimelech wants her to be his wife in Genesis chapter 20, she's now 90 years old. Now, as beautiful as Sarah was, the reason she's mentioned here is because she willingly submitted to her husband. You remember that Abram, before he was Abraham, was living in Ur of Chaldees, and God appears to him and says, Abraham, take your family and go to a land that I will show you. Ladies, imagine your husband comes to you today and says, uh, we're, we're selling the house, we're packing everything up, and we're moving. And you go, where are we going? And he goes, I don't know, but we're moving. Now, last week we talked about how to talk with your husband in decisions and things like that. But uh, if, if your husband told you to do that, would you say, okay, I'm going to just follow you? It says here that Sarah submitted. And the reason she did that was because Abram said, the Lord God has called us to a land that he will show us. Now, ladies, if you're thinking, well, it was easy for Sarah to follow Abraham because he was such a great and godly leader. Uh, remember, we just found that he tried to give her away twice to other men. Uh, so next time you're counting the faults of your husband, ask yourself, has he ever tried to marry me off twice to some other guy? You know, but in spite of Abraham's failures as a husband and a leader, it says Sarah called him Lord which is what we find in Genesis 18, 12. Now, last week we talked about what you as women can do to help your husband become the man and the leader he needs to be. You remember we talked about being an encourager, being a cheerleader, praying for your husband. So, ladies, if you don't yet have the husband that you want, if you don't have a, a man who is the leader that God calls him to be, are you doing those things? And men, remember, we talked last week about a lot of application and things you can be doing. As husbands, we're called to love our wives as Christ loved the church, to serve them, to sacrifice for them. And next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about what it means for us as men to live with our wives in an understanding manner. So be here next week as we finish up this part uh, of this series and what it means for biblical submission in the home. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord now in prayer? Lord God, would you help us to be men and women who love you? And as we love you, that we would love others, specifically within our homes, that we would serve each other. 
I pray, Father, for those who are in homes where the spouses are not believers or they're living as non-believers. May you change their hearts. Would you draw them to yourself? Lord God, would you change all of us to look more like the husbands and wives we should be? And as we do, may our lives and homes be things that attract others as they look at our home and say, I want what you have. Why is your, your marriage different than mine? We thank you, Jesus, for coming to save us. We thank you for the example you gave us of how to love and serve for and sacrifice for one another. May we be faithful to follow you. May we be your witnesses starting in our homes, going into our schools, our workplaces, the community, and the world as your witnesses. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.